Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Joy today, she's the founder of Moxie Bookkeeping and Coaching and Entrepreneur. It's Ian Murphy. How are you doing today, Ian? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing so good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Um, well, I'm from Northern California and um, yeah. <laughs> what was I involved in growing up? What do you mean? What would you, what do you want to know? What did you like to do? Oh, I um, loved and still love sitting and reading. Like I could read all day, every day and be completely content, especially if I have a dog with me, you know, a little bit of sunshine is great, but not, not totally necessary. Cause a, a you know, a good rainy day and a, a warm fireplace is also pretty awesome. With each grade or is each age growing up, did the change of what types of books change or did you like the same genre style each year? Um, I think I've always really enjoyed an eclectic mix. You know, one of the things that I love about reading is how many new worlds it opens up, both real and fantasy. Um you know, my parents had a bookshelf in the living room. And so I remember younger than I should have been sort of going, oh, you know, these are the classics, I guess I should read them. And so reading like Kurt Vonnegut when I was 12 and being like, I don't really get it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, you know, just, yeah, all things, all things. Yeah, I did not like reading growing up. But if you put an autobiography or biography in front of me, I will read it because I was so fascinated about learning about someone and Mm -hmm. their story. I guess that's probably why I do the show, but (laughs) it was just more interesting than like the required books we had to read because I'm like, I'm not interested. Or I think the best is if the movie, if the book had a movie and then we watched the movie in class, I'm like, okay, I'm down because I know there's at least a fun ending to what we do for this period of time we're reading this book. Yeah. And I'm absolutely one of those people that I have to read the book before I see the movie because I can keep the, that's nothing like the book in my head. But if I do it the other way around, I can't, I just don't have the same experience reading if I already have those images in my head. So I think a lot of people are like, that's definitely a conversation that anyone has had is, do I go see the movie or do I read the book? And Mm -hmm. I think The only one that I can think of is Harry Potter series is the big one of do people read it or do people go and see it? Because it's not like you can take every single thing in a book and put it into a movie because you got to keep people interested. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What was your favorite book growing up? Oh, consistently, what was my favorite book growing up? I don't know that I had a favorite book. I mean, I definitely had like a children's book favorite, which was yeah. Bremen Town Musicians. <laughs> Very entertaining little story, um, but for, definitely for a young age. I don't know that there was anything that I went back and read over and over. I loved Stephen King when I was young. Okay. Loved. Um yeah, I don't know that I had a single favorite. When you're reading a book and it's talking about things that can happen into a person's life, did you ever think about for you, does this relate to me or 
could this be my future and things like that? I think I've always related in some way or another, right? That's the, that's the connection between mm-hmm. you and the story. And it's one of the, there's like a little controversy, I guess, right now about the new movie Turning Red, Pixar. I'm not sure if I'm even getting the name right. I haven't and, heard of it. Um, it's a story of a young girl. I haven't seen it. So I'm going to butcher this. I have a young girl <laughs> who's coming of age and some like turns into a red panda. If she gets angry or oh, something, I'm not, you know, yes, I've seen the commercial. Yes. I have not seen the commercial. I just have read the online chitter chatter around people saying, well, this is really not relatable, you know? And I was like, really? I feel like all of us have a coming of age story and all of us have some sort of awkward emotional story. And, you know, this feeling of outburst, you know, or like turning into someone we don't want to. I, I did not get it at all how people thought that it wouldn't be relatable to absolutely everyone, but I haven't seen it yet. So I might see it and be totally disappointed. (laughs) We'll see. Growing up, did you have any inspiration, someone that motivated you to go out on the things you wanted to do in life? Uh, I did definitely had a motivating person. My great aunt Evie, who is my grandmother's sister, uh, was the caretaker for me and my sister during the day because my dad worked and then played music all night. And my mom was in medical school. So both of them were really busy. And so she was sort of the primary person in the household. And she was for sure a character. And so I think that she really helped open the horizons of what was possible. Um, You know, she definitely marched to the tune of her own drum for better and for worse. Um, Yeah. I don't think that I looked at her and said, I want to be like her in, in the things that she'd done or accomplished so much as just seeing the possible, you know, the, the choices and the possibilities being much more open, I think, than a lot of other people have the chance to experience. Did she ever say anything that you kind of still utilize today? Uh, I mean, she had lots of very funny little sayings. Um, (laughs) I don't know that any of them were particularly hers, but just sort of, um, you know, sort of a carpe diem attitude about things. Don't worry what other people are, you know, thinking doing, you just do what you want to do. And as long as you're not stepping on toes, you know, there's no reason to pay attention to what anybody else says. Looking at your journey so far, what was that dream job that you're wanting? You talked about books. Did it ever happen to be being an author or did you kind of think about a different direction? Not an author. No. And it's funny because I'm getting ready to write my first book this year. Uh, and I've put it off forever, but I definitely wanted to be a teacher. That was the plan from, you know, from a very early age, which is funny because I think at a time when a lot of kids are still, you know, astronaut firemanning, yep. I was like, nope, teacher. And, and that persisted all the way through college until I actually taught. <laughs> and then I realized <laughs> that it was not, not for me. Um, but I've definitely managed to incorporate that idea of education and empowerment through education in my bookkeeping business that I run now. You know, it's not just we show up and do data entry. I really want you to know how to do it so that you're making the decision to do it or not, rather than just running away from something because you're like, I'm not, I don't like numbers. I'm not doing it. What made you get drawn into teaching? 
Like there has to, I mean, sometimes maybe was there a teacher that you're like, I mean, it goes back to the inspiration, but motivators, but what made you want to be a teacher? I think that community support has always been super important to me for sure. I had a a series of great teachers, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my first classroom experience, which was in Northern California in the seventies. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of experimentation and education happening there. We were actually in a a building called the carousel. It was a round building painted like a carousel on the outside. And they just had like two or three grades together. I think it was kindergarten first and second, like all mixed in. So we all were very self-directed and um, there was a group of teachers there. You didn't have just one teacher. There was a whole cluster of teachers. and, And that was a really interesting way to learn, right? You go to the person that is the expert in a particular subject Mm -hmm. and learn from them rather than just having a teacher who's talking from a book and not really adding much to the conversation. Living in Northern California, did it have that stereotype of like California living um, during that time to how it is pertained today? Well, so I'm nodding my head, but I actually think that the the true stereotype of California is Southern California and Northern California is is very different, uh, but definitely like hippie to the extreme. Right. (laughs) And, you know, the sort of seventies parenting of, you know, go be your, go be your own little Buddha. You'll, you know, I think there was a Simpsons line, uh, when Bart got moved up to the special, you know, smart kid class. And the teacher was like, discover your desks. And I was like, oh my God, that was totally my education. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I, you know, I think there was definitely that feeling of hope and possibility and trying new things. You know, there's no reason to put all of the chairs in rows or even make kids sit in chairs. They can sit on the floor and learn just as well. And so there was a lot of free flowingness rather than rigid structure to it, for sure. Where did your education path take you for college? as you continued that path to become a teacher? Yeah. So I actually went back East to college to meet the other half of my uh, makeup. My dad was born in New Jersey. His mom was um, raised in Manhattan. His grandmother and great grandmother were in Manhattan. You know, one of them was in Harlem when it was still Dutch dairy farms. So, so there was a lot of me living in California that didn't feel completely settled, Mm -hmm. you know, where it was like, I don't understand why people aren't willing to be direct or, you know, and so I, so I went out to New York to go to college and it just was the missing piece. And I ended up staying there for 30 years before moving back home. Um, Yeah. Just the sassiness of, of the Brooklyn attitude definitely fit me. Uh, So I went to college in, in Manhattan and that was part of, I think the the unwise choice that I made was I did my, my senior year internship at a sort of a last stop high school mm-hmm. in New York, which was just way above my skill level. Like I just, you know, I'd come from this, like everybody loves each other, happy, you know, go lucky flowers and sunshine upbringing to like this gritty, rude, uh, just systemically unfair culture of the, of what these kids had to live through. And I just like was completely overwhelmed by it, completely overwhelmed. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. This isn't fun. 
<laughs> now looking back at that t- that experience, does it make you really learn about how like society and how the world is and how like each state, you just don't know what's going on unless you're in that state and living in it? Yeah, I I mean, for sure, I think I've always tried to cultivate compassion, but definitely going and experiencing people who just do not have the level of privilege that I have as a, you know, healthy middle-class white woman mm-hmm. has given me a lot of, um, a lot of leeway for people who maybe I don't agree with their choices or behaviors, but I, I just know, like I had different decisions than they had. I had different options than they had most of the time. And, and I just can't pretend to know how they arrived to where they were. And so unless I'm going to get curious and ask them, yep, no judgments. I just, I really don't like being judgy or, or I really, you know, and again, this is sort of one of the things that comes up in work because I work with people around money. Most people have a lot of baggage, myself included, have a lot of baggage around money, whatever that looks like. And and there's a lot of shame attached with either not having enough or having too much or having done it in a different way than your parents or society expected you to. And I don't really know how that all got turned into I'm doing it wrong mm-hmm. for so many people, but it, it really uh, shocks me how many people have deep shame around money. And, and I definitely want to eradicate that, right? Like that's not, it's not okay for people to feel shame about the choices they've made. You can feel regret like, wow, I wish I could have made a different decision, but um, you know, shame just feels so counterproductive. And especially during those times or like during that time when people are feeling it and people are judging people for how they're making their money. It's like, we don't know the full story on why they had to do that. And I think you brought up a great point with you can't judge because you, you got to know what those individuals are going through. And I kind of live by that. Like, I want to get to know the person, not just like, if I see someone in the news, like, okay, yeah, I'm aware of that person, but I want to have that chance that really get to know them. And maybe it gives me a little bit more background story on what's going on and stuff. So I kind of stay focused, clear-minded about any people I meet because you just don't know what that person might be going through at that time. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, we are all such products of our environment, like to a level we can't even realize. And it's, you know, again, I think when people sort of, because not to like get all political here, I think it's not the fact that we disagree. We've always disagreed. People have always disagreed with each other. It's how we're choosing to disagree with each other these days with this very dismissive, abrupt, rude, right? That makes the conversation so hard. And, you know, it's very easy for everyone to think, I don't understand how anyone thinks like that. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why everyone can't see the clarity and the reason behind the way that I think. And to me, that's like saying, I don't understand why I don't speak Arabic or Japanese or, you know, French. Like, well, I did, that's not what I grew up with. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have even necessarily have been exposed to that language, if you will, of other ways of processing information, just the baseline assumptions that we make. 
you know, and, and so it's always really interesting to me to, again, even for people that I definitely do not like, (laughs) (laughs) I can, I can give them the space of like, you know, disagreeing with them is not going to make either one of us happier. I don't think anyone has ever changed their mind because someone yelled at them about something, you know, and, and I obviously don't have enough love and compassion for this person or a deep enough relationship to be able to have any kind of meaningful engagement around some of the more sensitive topics. And I don't really want to take the time to become that person's friend just to try to convince them of, of my way of thinking. That's a little arrogant for me. So, you know, detach with love. Yeah. <laughs> Release them back into the wild. <laughs> you talked about how you did in your last year at a high school. Did you have a specific subject that you wanted to teach? Um, I think I was thinking general, not math, which is, you know, <laughs> I, very funny that I own a bookkeeping business because I'm not a math person at all. Um, I think, you know, I don't know that I would say English just because of the grammar. I, you know, again, I'm maybe creative writing history has always interested me. So I think I was thinking sort of, you know, general ed high school rather than that's why I was thinking high school rather than, than a college level um, is because I really love those stories that, that weave between history and, you know, fiction and historical fiction and all that stuff. So after graduation or after college, what was that next step for you? Um, I took a year off and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and, and I think it took me a, a while to get that settled. Uh, you know, I sort of left college and became one of the underemployed where I was working multiple jobs and not earning a living wage. And that really changed the focus of mm-hmm. what I was doing. You know, I, I knew I didn't want to go work in some corporate establishment, uh, but I didn't know what the alternatives were other than, you know, bartending, waitressing and, and temp work. And um, I'm very lucky that I stumbled upon bookkeeping as something that I am surprisingly good at um, and really enjoy you know, that it has enough of a problem solving element to it, that it keeps me engaged, especially around other people's bookkeeping, right. Helping people figure out how to set things up so that yep. it produces the right result. Um, yeah. You know, I, I might never have found that and I don't know what I would be doing if I hadn't. Was the passion gone from teaching and that's why you needed to take that year off? Because I think a lot of people struggle with well, I went to college, I need to get out there and working. But I think some people take advantage of that year off to kind of find what's next. Maybe there's a different thing out there that's better suit for them. Yeah. So I tried teaching a couple of different ways. So, you know, in, in my senior year of college, I did this internship in a high school. Um, I did a summer program that was in a middle school and I already knew like middle school is, is very particular. It's a very particular stage of development that I don't relate to easily. Um, and then I did adult ed and I, I actually, I didn't hate doing adult ed, but I also didn't love it. Um, and that job in order to be able to keep teaching, I would have had to go back and take a typing course. 
because <laughs> I didn't have enough typing credits in college, which was really weird. And I just was like, you know what? I don't love this job that much to go back to school to take, you know, a semester of typing. Well, um, and so that kind of blew it for me was just this idea of, I was really looking for an exchange of ideas rather than, you know, teaching to a test and, our education system in the U.S., I think, has really fallen apart and really begun to fail people for decades now. You know, I, I think my sister may have been the last generation to have home ec and woodshop. Oh, and, yeah. You know, like all of the stuff that like we all need to know how to do this, you know, and nobody's teaching it anymore. There's no more school gardens. There's no more art class, music class. Like it's all this teaching to the test academics that I don't think really teaches anybody a love for learning. Right. And if you're not learning a love for learning, then what's the point of school? So yeah, I don't, I don't think it was so much passion as, Oh, this is not the flavor I thought it was going to be when I saw the rapper. <laughs> I don't like this flavor at all you know, what do I want now? And just really not having a plan B because I'd always assumed I was going to be a teacher. So it wasn't like, oh, well, you know, now fall back to astronaut now, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You talked about how home ec people, they're not doing it. And I go, and I'm like, I would love to have done that. But now my home ec is just watching Food Network nowadays. Exactly. Or YouTube something. And I think there's so many classes where, I think like real world stuff like taxes and things like that, that they should be teaching, but they don't. And it's like, we take accounting, but it's about accounting on a business, not personal. And I think there's so many ways that they could incorporate those things because I think a lot more people, a lot of students will take advantage of it because if the parents hear that's an option, they're going to make their kid want to do it. And then the kid will be better prepared for the future. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's sort of the question is like, what, what imagined future do we think we're preparing people for? Yeah. Cause I don't really, you know, I've never had to, to chart a sentence <laughs> since <laughs> I left school, you know, like that was not, a, and again, I get it as a, as a framework for learning. I think foundations are important, but the pandemic has definitely brought up this question for so many people. And I um, feel really lucky that I don't have, you know, kids in school that I have to deal with this directly, mm-hmm. but you know, but kind of what's the point anymore, you know, children are, have been so confused like the rest of us with the you wear a mask. You don't wear a mask. You know, you can go to school. Oh, you can't go to school. Oh, you can go back to school. Oh, but someone has COVID now. And, and just the, the level of disruption and this idea again, that like what an opportunity that could have been to reimagine the delivery of education. And instead what we did was we put everybody on zoom and just kept talking. (laughs) Right. And I, I heard of one art teacher that like mailed out art supplies to her students and was like, this is your art project, you know, make, make whatever you want and send me a picture of it and let me know you're done. And, and there just wasn't any strengthening of that creative spirit of education. 
right? If you don't like reading, great, go make some stuff. You don't like making stuff, go great, you know, go do something else. Like find, find the way that you like to learn because once you get that love of learning, you know, gardening is math and Mm -hmm. planning and spreadsheets and, you know, when do crops come up and how much water do they need and what soil ratio, like any, you can use anything to teach everything basically. And we've managed to just compartmentalize that down into nothing. (laughs) So yeah, that's why I don't want to teach. (laughs) You talked about how you were working a bunch of jobs and not good minimum wage. Did it ever get financially trouble for you, especially living in New York and on the East coast and things like that? Yeah. So I actually went bankrupt because, you know, the, the minimum wage for restaurant jobs is far below or was, and in many places still is far below the actual minimum wage. So I think I was making like a dollar 67 an hour. Wow. Um, And you are supposed to make that up you know, you're supposed to be guaranteed the regular minimum wage, which still, you know, five or $7 or whatever it is, but nobody does that, right? If you have a bad tips night, Mm -hmm. nobody says, oh, well then let's pay you the difference so that you get paid the the minimum wage you're supposed to get. And I didn't know that in my early twenties, right? The reason I went bankrupt is because I was financially illiterate. No one had ever back to this. No one had ever taught me how to be appropriate with money, you know, how to decide if I've got this much, how do I know what I can afford and what I can't. And, you know, as a reader, I, I read so many personal finance books, but it never really addressed, or I never heard from them. None of this works. If you don't have a basic living wage, none of it works. And again, I think millennials are getting, a lot of that too. Like, Oh, stop buying a latte and avocado toast. Like that's not the issue. (laughs) Like, yes. As as far as like personal household budgets, maybe that's not the best use of my money, but that's not going to get me out of student debt. That's not going to let me be able to afford a home or be able to live without three roommates. Right. Like that's just, you're talking on two different scales here. And so I think that as a culture, we're still really, unclear about how awful minimum wage truly is. And, you know, again, what a, what a, and I say this as a small business owner, what a detriment to our entire country to not have people be able to live on one job. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that was, that was the American dream. You could support an entire family, buy a house, have a car on one salary. Like that's just unheard of. Yeah. Now. That impossible. <laughs> and I, it freaks me out that no one's really paying attention to that in the mainstream. Nope. Did you ever feel that you couldn't reach out to anyone going through that bankruptcy time? Or were you trying to, was it more kind of like, like kind of how you viewed what you were going through and you didn't want to share it with other people? I mean, definitely. I was so embarrassed, like so embarrassed because I had grown up, work hard and you'll succeed. Mm -hmm. But I was working really hard and not succeeding. And so again, I assumed that it was a personal failure 
did not yet understand the whole, you know, <laughs> if the room is above a hundred degrees, sweating is not your fault, right? This is yep. the environment in which you're in. This is, this is the only way to respond. So I just didn't know who to ask, right? Um, I didn't have any financial mentors. Uh, you know, my parents were the ones that were like, well, just work hard. You know, my dad loved to tell me how he put himself through college uh, as ROTC. And I was like, well, okay, A, I'm clearly not going to join the military. Like, look at me. And B, you know, a, a dollar then does not equal a dollar now. Like education costs are out of control. Housing costs are out of control. The wage is not kept up. Like he, again, was working from an assumption that was just no longer true. So the places that I thought to ask or that I knew to ask did not have the information that I needed. And that was sort of coupled with this mindset issue of, oh, I guess I'm only worth minimum wage. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess because I don't have a degree or I, you know, I'm not a, professional, whatever it is that, that I didn't see a clear path for myself in something that I wanted to do that was going to pay me well. Did you ever think about going, you talked about earlier about you didn't want to work in corporate and kind of that kind of style. Did you have that realization? Like, maybe I have to do this because I need to make money and kind of get back on my feet. I definitely thought about it, but I, you know, what I was hearing from the people that I knew that had, had chosen to do that and to join up with corporate was that it was a really horrible environment that you'd be working, you know, 80 hour weeks and not, and being paid more than I was being paid for sure, but still not enough Mm -hmm. to justify that. And so I thought, you know, I don't really want to trade time for money in that way. I'd rather have less and do more than, you know, than I'd rather have the time than the money. And again, that was too much black and white thinking. And it wasn't until, so, so what happened after my bankruptcy was I, I was like, well, I can do bookkeeping. Let me just do that. And working for myself, I could set my own wage. And so I could say, well, this is how much I need to live on. So I need to make sure that I'm charging at least that. And if you don't want to pay me that, cool, we're not a good fit, which is a totally different relationship than employer employee, right? Or even, even bartender customer. (laughs) So, you know, cause that's the whole thing about tips and why I hate them so much is (laughs) it's, it shouldn't be up to how good your day is going, right? Yeah. How much I get paid. Like we all know there's a percentage that we're asked to give, but what if I don't have the right change, right? Or what if I just got stiffed by somebody or I haven't gotten paid? There's like, there's so many things. And on the other end of that, for sure, a lot of the people that I saw come into my bar that were able to throw around hundred dollar bills were not people I wanted to hang out with, right? You know, like I was like, I'm not, I'm going nowhere near that table. So yeah, you know, what are, what are the choices we're given and, and how much um, do we allow that to be a limitation and how much of that really is a limitation? Who knows? I think some of the listeners can probably have had that same question of, do I put in the time 
and it's worth the money or do I want less time and be able to do things for myself? Because I think it's, can you separate your work and your personal life and make it work and kind of balance it out? Because I kind of look at, well, I don't want to be stressed and then I don't get to enjoy what I want to do personally. And so I think I've come up with where if I'm working eight hours, I work hard for those eight hours. Once that clock hits, I'm done. But I like how as an entrepreneur, you're able to create your schedule and you get to have that full control of your business. And I think there's a lot of shows now that are showing that, but I think a lot of people struggle to get it started. So talk about that journey in getting your business started. So I started my business because I knew that I had to learn about money Mm -hmm. and I had been working as an office manager for this woman. Um, and she was paying me $9 an hour to run her office, negotiate her contracts, you know, like send her guys out into the field. She, she did a custom tile work. Um, and she had like eight, eight guys working for her, you know, coordinating car payments, da, 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 da. And I, that was sort of this, like, this is definitely, I'm definitely being underpaid. So that was my version of corporate, right? I'm going to go get a full-time job, work for one person in an office. You know, I'm going to do it in the construction world because I, I don't want to have to wear pantyhose to anywhere. Um, (laughs) And even there, you know, like she just wasn't paying me enough to live. And, and when I said, Hey, you know, most of the people that do what I do get paid somewhere between like 15 and $25 an hour. And I could have just left it there, but instead I followed it up with, how about you give me a raise to $10, right? So I'm saying most people get this. Maybe you could throw me a few crumbs like that. Clearly mindset issue. Nothing else was going on there other than me undercutting myself. And she still said no. So like, why, why not go for the big thing and get the no? And maybe that's what it was. Maybe I was trying to negotiate down so that she'd say yes, but she said, "Hmm, I'll give you 925. And I was like, that is not going to work. So it was at that job that I realized that I enjoyed bookkeeping, that I was good at bookkeeping, that, that with the advent of bookkeeping software, it's not math. The program does the math for you. It's, it's logic, common sense and communication. So I was able to say, well, that was really the most valuable part of that job. So let me do that for multiple people. And so when I parted ways with my employer, which we did on pretty good terms, you know, she connected me to a lot of the craftspeople that she was working with, interior designers or other, you know, people working in other areas of wall plastering or wood finishing or whatever. So, so I was able to bookkeep for sort of craftspeople and artisans my heart is very much with small business. You know, that's, it's the, it is the back, it is our economy. It's not even the backbone of our economy. Mm-hmm. Small business is our economy. And, and it was a way for me to learn about money without it having to be my money. I got to see so many different things. And unfortunately, what I saw was nobody has any idea what they're doing. Nobody has any idea how money works. Yeah, And you know, so now that I was getting paid enough that I had the time and the space to really research that, that was where I sort of developed this ability to guide people 
with now that your books are perfect, what do you want to do about it? Right. Mm -hmm. And thankfully that has served me well as more and more of the data entry moves towards AI and, you know, automation and all of that stuff, because that's the least interesting part of what I do. You know, instead it's about what is your goal? What do you want? Why are you in business? What do you want out of this? You know, not what are you doing for your business, but what is your business doing for you? And because work is life, right? It's not, it's, yep. I mean, we talk about the work-life balance, but it's, it's sort of, you know, that sounds to me too much like I'm having to balance what I want to do with what I have to do. And I'd much rather see those two things blended together, right? So that I want to go to work every day, but yeah, there's definitely some parts of work that I don't <laughs> love and I have to do it. Um, but just really sort of seeing it holistically. Talk about your bond with your clients and kind of that relationship. How do you keep it strong? And especially during the pandemic times where everything is now virtual like crazy, how do you continue to keep that client relationship? We've actually been virtual for years. So we so had you've been this, way ahead of this. We had no, yeah, because because when I when I hired my first employee in 2003, we were still going on site and doing people's books. And then cloud-based accounting came along. And at first when it came along, I was like, oh, why would you pay a subscription? You know, like why would I pay <laughs> every month for something that I could buy once every three years? That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Until I began to see how it facilitated the communication, right? We're both looking at the same thing at the same time. And what that meant was I could look at it at the same time from you from a different place. Yep. And so then I was like, I don't have to lose, you know, three hours a day on the subway, getting to a client, <laughs> to another client and then home again, I can spend that three hours being productive, whatever that means to me on a personal project or a business project. So we very quickly, as soon as it was feasible, we shifted to virtual and immediately saw the benefits of that. So, you know, and again, the, the, I think it's very easy for traditional bookkeepers to just send the reports at the end of the month and be okay with that. But that's, that's not ensuring literacy, right? And since that's, you know, my sort of, excitement comes around. I don't want you to make mistakes that I could help prevent with you. I always want to have those conversations. I want to have that conversation every month. Did you open the email with your reports? <laughs> Did you look at them? And then what questions do you have? Maybe the question is this number looks funny to me. And either that's because something happened that shouldn't have happened or that you weren't expecting, or maybe there's a data entry error, but more importantly, okay, you know, this report is the ingredients to make what you want to make next. Yep. So what do you want to do about it? Right. Where are we going to invest? Where do we need to do more? Where do we need to do less? Um, and really make sure that, that we're crafting a business that, that people want to have. Your, your title or the title, the name of your company, Moxie, how did you get inspired and called it Moxie? Uh, we were named by a client. So I was, it was, uh, I was right after I'd hired my first employee or maybe just before. And I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm incorporating, I'm going to be a legitimate business now. Da, da, da. And I was like, I don't really want to call it 
Ian Murphy bookkeeping, like, you know, that just doesn't feel right to me. And um, the client that I was with, they're called Creative Film Cars, and they find people with classic or unusual cars and link them up with um, commercial and television sets. So they're really fun people. And one of the guys, Donald was like, you know, I've, just, I've always wanted to call a business moxie. And I was like, that's it. That's perfect. We're done. So it was really easy. <laughs> and it, it is, I, I, you know, I think it describes the way that I work. Absolutely. You know, sort of the grit determination, but also, I don't know if you've ever had Moxie Cola. Mm-mm. It is an acquired taste. Like it is <laughs> not for everyone. It's um, it has a real herbal taste to it a little bit like ginseng. So if you're not used to like, quote unquote, natural products, not that it's a natural product, it's still a soda, but it, it tastes a little bit like dirt to some oh. people. I, again, I love it. I think it's great, <laughs> but, um, you know, but that tickled me too, because I think for sure, you know, I'm not, I don't look like your normal accountant. I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not the Coca-Cola vibe. I'm this like the Moxie vibe. Yeah, but we can't be judging on the looks of someone because right. you, you just don't know. Like, I mean, I, I mean, I know I'm not an accountant, but I am decent with my money. I will say, yeah. but you just don't, we're, yeah. going, we're reversing and rewinding, going back to what we were just talking about. I would, yeah, and and I think judgment and assumptions are slightly different, right? Yeah. So if we think of that. Good old catchphrase. You can't judge a book by your cover. (laughs) No, but a good cover will indicate the theme inside the book, right? Yeah. So I can't tell if it's going to be a good book or a bad book, but I can tell it's probably a thriller or probably a romance or probably a, you know, nonfiction history, you know, right. That's what the cover is supposed to do is, is to give someone a, just a little like hint of what's inside. So. That's my take on it. We talked about work-life balance. Have you been able to find something that you've enjoyed? You talked about your planning to write, um, but have you found anything else that kind of gets you up and you're like, when you're done working, this is what I enjoy doing. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, um, I'm a pretty simple person. So I, when I'm done working, I grab my dog and we go for a walk in the backyard. Aww. We've got a, a fabulous yard. I have a fabulous dog. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I just, you know, love hanging out with him and going for walks. And I don't love weeding my garden, but I, <laughs> I do it. Right. There you go. There's some things you have to do. The stuff you like to do. Yep. There's, some, there's some have to's in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love movies. I love theater. You know, all this, all this stuff. And now are you back in California from, or... Yes. I, um, so my parents and my family are all still in Northern California. So I moved back to Northern California five months before the pandemic. Oh, wow. My timing could not have been better. Um, yeah, my dad had hip surgery. I wanted to be a little closer just in case I have a sister, but I don't want to, you know, have her be the only one taking care of my folks. Uh, and then everything shut down, but I, um, um, I'm, I'm in my dream home. Awesome. Which is really awesome. And yeah, I, so I would have, if I had been trapped in New York in the pandemic, I would have been in a 700 square foot fourth floor walk up. 
oh, with that. no outdoor space. Oh, <laughs> it's just that just doesn't appeal. Not for two years, right? We thought it was no, maybe yeah. two years. Um, yeah, and instead, I'm you know I'm here on three acres in in this gorgeous you know semi rural part of Northern California where there's rivers and mountains and I'm, you know, an hour and a half from Lake Tahoe, if I want to go do that, or, you know, four hours from the coast, if I want to go do that. So it's, it's been wonderful. I think I'm jealous. I think I'm jealous. I'm a little jealous. It's me and I'm a little jealous. <laughs> I always say, cause I'm like right in the Midwest. So it's like, if I need to go to the beach, well, it's a plane ride or a long 13 hour drive somewhere, but it's like, you see the pictures of Tahoe and you're like, can I just go there right now? And you're only an hour from there. I know. I mean, is the it Great like a Lakes vacation? are pretty awesome. Is it a yes. vacation spot for you? Yeah. We have an annual family party. At nice. Lake Tahoe. Yeah. Yeah. So. Do, is there anything that you have brought from your time living in New York back to California? <laughs> so because <laughs> there's like some people like when they live abroad, they kind of take like a certain style, something like from that culture and they bring it and they still do today. Do you have that with your move also? Yes. Yes. I mean, and again, I think some of it is I'm very direct you know, I don't waste a lot of time trying to soften the message. Like I will, I won't be mean about it, but if I have something to say, I'll just say it. And that was part of what led me to New York in the first place was that that was very um, different mm-hmm. than the culture of California. There's a, there's a famous little cartoon of two guys walking past each other, saying something and having a thought bubble above their head. And the, the one that's labeled New York is two guys being like, F you. And the other guy goes, <laughs> F you. And the little bubble above their head is like, hello. <laughs> and then in the other picture, which is exactly the same, the, the guy says, hello. And the other guy says, hello. And the little thought bubbles above their head say, F you. And that one's labeled California, <laughs> which just cracks me up to no end. And that's sort of it. So, so I would say that my, my kind of no nonsense sassiness that has always been there flourished in New York um, and definitely came home with me. Right. I definitely still have like a a pace and a quickness about me and I like things to be efficient and Mm -hmm. what, you know, what do you need from me? Why are we, you know, like, Oh, we're just chit chatting. Okay. Then I need to like get, get some stuff down and come back to you in five minutes. Cause I'm not ready for that yet. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish both personally and professionally in the next few years? Yeah, those are very similar. They're very intertwined. I am looking forward to uh, coming out with a book and an online course along with that, that will allow me to share the information that I'm sharing with more people without uh, taking more of my time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a couple of basic things that we do with almost every client and I don't know why I haven't recorded it yet. I think some of it is because I really enjoy the conversational piece of it. Um, and likely those would, you know, it would be like a, here's a, here's a learning module. If you'd like to watch this before our meeting, it'll go faster. And then I can still have the, like, what questions did that leave you with? Uh, 
because I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing in my business isn't just for, oh, how can I be more efficient? But how, how can I feel more comfortable in doing what I'm doing, right? How can mm-hmm. I be of the most service to myself as well as to my clients? Um, and the book is the same thing. You know, it's just, it's time to put some of that stuff in writing and make sure that it's accessible. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? You have to give yourself grace. Number one, you have to give yourself grace. And I think it's also really important to remember that, um, community care is more important or as important as self-care. Mm-hmm. We can only take care of ourselves so far and we really need the support of people around us. Yep. So, you know, being around people who lift you up, lead you to be the best version of you that you can be, even if you're not feeling it yourself is super important, right? Um, yeah. Well, Ian, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You like to die. 